0: Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking Revealed. I'm Linda Elder, and I'm coming to you from the Foundation for Critical Thinking, a 501 nonprofit organization in California. This program is focused on the best thinking of the people who have done the best thinking within their fields of study. Aspiring critical thinkers realize that they don't know everything. They realize that there are many things that they can never know. They also realize that they can only be experts to the extent that they are in narrow ways. So we reach out to other experts to help inform us on important issues of the day. And we do this while also embodying intellectual autonomy. So we listen, we seek, We attempt to understand, and in the end, we know we must do our own best thinking and make our own decisions. In this program, we are focused on, again, revealing the best thinking that is being done to advance fair-minded critical societies while protecting the earth and its resources and upholding the rights and needs of all sentient creatures this is the spirit of Critical Thinking Revealed. Our distinguished guest today is Dr. David Robert Grimes, a scientist and author with a keen interest in the public understanding of science. He writes on a broad range of topics focused on science and society for news outlets including The Guardian, The Irish Times, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The BBC, Financial Times, and The New York Times. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Irrational Ape, Why We Fall for Disinformation, Conspiracy Theories, and Propaganda, which is also titled in in North America, Good Thinking, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk and how critical thinking can save the world. We'll be talking about this book a little bit later. So welcome Dr. Grimes to our program. Yeah,
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Our first and main focus in this particular program is on the climate crisis due to the dire consequences we face if we fail to think critically about the earth and its resources. So let's begin there. And my first question for you is, How would you describe the health of the earth, given your studies to this point?
1: So with the caveat that I'm not a climatologist, just a keen reader on this, uh, I I think crisis is an apt term. And I, I, I kind of like to see the shift that we've gone towards climate crisis. And the reason that shift, to answer your question in a slightly roundabout way, the reason that shift is, to me, at least a positive thing, Is that we've had many many years of very abject denialism now we still have denialism but it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to deny the evidence in front of them and for a long time in our history from the 1960s onwards in fact denialism even though the scientific consensus was very clear that humans are creating climate change that's going to be detrimental to us there was a huge amount of organized opposition to that so finally, as things get more and more severe, there is at least a recognition that we really are in an immediate phase where we have to take action. And my feeling is, and I, I'm, you're state side, stateside, so you you have your finger on the pulse more there. But from following even U.S. media, my my feeling is that there's an increasing um, amount of of general acceptance of the reality of climate change, if not the cause of it. So at least people are no longer denying the nose on their face, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that is, from a critical thinking perspective, that is progress. It's not where we need to be, but I'm hopeful it's in the right direction. That being said, we are in a crisis situation. Um, We can only take a certain amount of actions now to prevent absolute future catastrophe. And it is still very, very hard to get individuals and indeed corporations to take the necessary corrective actions. And even politically, we're seeing um, the same kind of inertia we've seen before, where people are now accepting that climate change is real, but trying to downplay its ramifications for for the for the Earth and mm-hmm. their responsibility for it as well.
0: I I appreciate the way you honed into the concept climate crisis. So as we begin, you 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 sort of jumped on that and said that's that's the right term. And this reminds us that our thinking is largely guided by the concepts that we're using. And if we see this these problems as resulting in a crisis, then that means we need immediate action. I uh, read the article that you wrote recently that was published in Scientific America. And in this article, you argue that denial of climate change is driven by ideology, leaving its consequences to harm us all, especially the world's poorest. To Talk a little about this ideology and its consequences, especially for the poor.
1: It's a really good question. And I'll try to give a focused answer, though. It might be a little broad in places. So... One of the things we've known from psychologists who study, and this is something as I, I'm originally a physicist. Now, I've been in health research for years, but we're very mechanistic physicists at times. And one of the things that over the years of, of, of doing science communication, like I've since learned, is that almost everything is a motive. It is not just a case of throwing facts at people. And I had to learn this the hard way. I went in with that information deficit model years ago. And climate change is um, an, the epitome of that to some degree. The biggest single psychological predictors of whether someone denies the reality of climate change is the amount they associate their identity with, say, free market libertarianism or, or conservatism. And that might seem a bit weird. So we need to unpack why that might be the case. And it goes back to the unfortunate reality that we all engage in a thing called identity protective cognition. Most of us, if someone insults our favorite sports team or our you know something we like, we take personal offense at it. If someone insults an idea, we like it, the emotional thing is to to feel criticized, to feel you know, angry about that. And that's very much because we identify with our ideas. Now, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, our ideas are often wrong, and we probably shouldn't do that. But it's a very human thing to do. So let's say I very strongly associate, for argument's sake, I am very much a believer that the free market can solve a lot of the world's problems. And this is the belief of a great many people, right? You can argue about the merits of libertarianism or not, but people believe this. Um, now imagine that climate change exists, which it does. Suddenly, my model of the world um, hits a bit of a spike, because suddenly, I can cause harm to someone else by consuming goods. I can no longer go, well, it's it's about what you consume, whatever else. My my whole the free market will sort this out attitude is not going to work. So I have two options at this juncture. Number one, I can take the difficult route of reevaluating my personal philosophy, putting new boundaries on it, finding exemptions to it, and going, actually, you know, it doesn't always work, and in this case, we'd have to adapt. That's the intellectually honest but very difficult uh, way of doing things. What is easier for a great many people is to simply deny there's a problem, downplay the problem, or attack the messenger of the problem. And this isn't just with climate change, but this is why we see such a passionate embrace of climate change denialism by people that tend to have these beliefs. So it is to preserve belief and this is the idea of motivated reasoning that you want to hold on to your belief even when the evidence is against it which of course is the is is not compatible with critical thinking but again we're humans first so that's the first reason why i would say that's ideological if your ideology is already the free market is great and i love you know this this country or this identity i've been born into and that's a big thing of it it's hard to change that it's really hard to change that because it feels like a personal attack Um, And there's loads of, there's other examples of this as well. It's not just climate change. The other thing about it as well, and we're seeing this more recently, is that we have a big strain on social media in particular of contrarianism. And this is the uh, kind of podcast you listen to where people will feel very smart by taking a contrary position to whatever the scientific uh, information is. And it becomes then stigmatized knowledge, something special that they feel powerful for having. I would argue that the likes of Joe Rogan do this, the kind of people Joe Rogan platforms are usually very much on the fringe of what is accepted, say, scientifically, but they get a huge amount of coverage of that. And that's a very contrarian kind of way of doing things. I've noticed recently that climate change nihilism has gone out of politics and into this identity where I'm a contrarian. And it's a corruption of critical thinker. Sometimes these people will use the term, I'm a critical thinker. And it, it, it can make the mind boggle because they're not. They are they're engaging in contrarianism. But that itself is ideological. It's viewing themselves in opposition to the established knowledge and therefore special. And that itself is a form of ideology. So this is broadly what I meant by the two streams of ideology that I think underpin a lot of modern climate denialism.
0: <laughs> There's a lot in what you said. Um, so, what what do you when you when you think of the term ideology? What is that? How do you conceptualize ideology itself? What is that?
1: That's a really good question because it is context specific. But generally, one kind of heuristic I would use for ideology in in, in most cases is. Um, a series of motivating beliefs constructed around an identity of yourself, right? So an ideology is, is the animus of that, so to speak. And again, it goes back to this identity protective model where our values and our beliefs get packed into a framework. And then we define ourselves either in concert or in opposition to that framework. And the problem with ideological thinking is that ideology is I mean the same root as the word ideas is right in there but it again it's the value we place in those ideas if those ideas are elevated to a high status that can become an ideological tenant but the problem with that is it becomes really hard to criticize if something is just an idea and criticize it if something is elevated to ideology it becomes a motivating it becomes your your your, your cause in some cases that is increasingly difficult to on 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 dethrone because it is so tied up with how we view ourselves and i think a lot of this is through the lens in which we look at the world and i would imagine a very simple heuristic is the idea is the elevation of an idea to a value and that's when you start getting into and that people will have different different and it, it is context specific but in the kind of broad context i would that's how i would form ideology when your ideas become a framework because they're elevated Beyond just that, they become part of what I define to you either in concert or opposition. That's still a bit mouthy, but we're, we're getting there.
0: A framework for your point of view um, in through which you're seeing the world and in which you are invested and you intend to keep that framework by hook or by crook, so to speak. In other Absolute. words, you, you want to see the world according to that. Now, going back, a bit to your article about the consequences of ideologies for the poor in terms of climate crisis. Where would you comment on that?
1: So that's, um, that goes back to the fact that we are, and I, I think it's probably an outdated term, but I, I haven't, uh, I, I'm, I'm an old dog trying to learn new tricks. I would still say the Western world, although I know it doesn't really make geographical sense. But if we look at say the richer nations, like in the USA and North America and Europe, we are, I wouldn't say we're not insulated from climate change, but we are less exposed to the harmful effects. Um, for example, an American example we can use in hot places in America, like you're, I think you're not in California right now, but you are you originally Californian? Um, you, you're, you're talking about air conditioning is a kind of standard thing that people have. And uh, when I grew up in the Middle East, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, uh, air conditioning was, was, was common. But for people in Pakistan, many of whom uh, I would have met in Saudi, that wasn't something they had now. Because of geography and because, unfortunately, that the world is not uh, evenly affected by all the, 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 the ramifications of climate change, you have areas in North Africa, uh, Pakistan, parts of India that are going beyond or to the very fringe of what is humanly possible to endure. And by that, I mean, we are all physiologically pretty much the same. And the main way we cool ourselves down is by sweating. Right. But there's a problem. If you're sweating and your humidity is very, very high, you, you hit thing the, the wet bulb temperature problem. And this is a, basically the, the point where it is too warm for human beings to cool themselves off by sweating. This is the stage where physiologically it becomes increasingly difficult to survive. So about 38 degrees Celsius at, at 100% humidity um, without being artificially cooled by water or or something else, you will die in those conditions. We have increasing amounts of the world suddenly veering into unsustainable conditions for human life. These tend to be densely populated, very poor regions. Again, uh, North Africa and, and parts of, of near Asia. You can, you can know, And even in, say, the Western world, we're finding increased extreme conditions coming up and down. But it's the poorer part of the planet that will be least able to adapt to that. In the regions most likely to suffer those immediate consequences and what you will see from that is um part of climate catastrophe or crisis i mean a catastrophe feels like we're going even further but you will see forced migrations because no one is going to stay in an area they can no longer live but as we've seen say in western europe we have problems with borders and america has seen similar attitudes uh, people like to protect what they see is their border um it's going to cause geopolitical problems on top of the problems. So when I say the poorest are affected, they're affected physiologically because they are unfortunately in those medians where things go um, poorly. If if conditions change, they're more vulnerable to climate change uh, crisis and they have less capacity to adapt. They don't have the disposable income that you or I uh, would have, or our governments would have. So, every every impact is just exacerbated and they actually have the lowest climate change or climate emissions like these are not nations that are producing huge amounts of industrial waste or they their their usage relative to URI is much lower mm-hmm. yet they will probably bear the brunt at least mm-hmm. initially of of what will come if we don't change the actions and that's it seems very unfair and that's because anyone who's ever told you life is fair um has, has, has been brought up in fairy tales, unfortunately.
0: Well, the ethical dimension has never been central to the po- political human True. orientation. It's always taken a back seat. And just for for just a bit of a correction so that those who are listening will know that I didn't miss this. In California, there are lots of people who don't have air conditioners. But that, by the way, is beginning to change as against the U.S. South, where almost everyone has an air conditioner. So your point is still well taken. And that's,
1: that's my ignorance of American geography now, just kicking well, in there. It's
0: fine. <laughs> yes, it's fine. But uh, the point is still um, very important. And in other words, the people who are producing the most um the, the biggest part of the problem in terms of climate change are the the people that will suffer the least. And the people who are who, are, who are just trying to get by and not causing the pollution that we're creating or their 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 pollution is at a much lower level, they're going to suffer the most
1: disproportionately uh, actually the going back to air conditioning one, it's an interesting example um because the way this is the, the physicist in me is being pulled out here uh, air conditioners actually increase the outside temperature so there was a thing there was um, a a recent i think it was the new york times covered it recently I, my memory is a bit shaken. so don't hold this to me but they were doing an article on um somewhere in pakistan where the richer areas had air conditioning which is helping them a bit but they're essentially raising the net temperature <laughs> of the surrounding area slums, which don't have it. Uh, because again, if you've ever stood outside a, an extractor fan from an air conditioner, you'll notice it's quite warm. And that's it, that's how it works. It's it, it's still using the laws of uh, entropy and thermodynamics. It can't create cool. It has to just pump heat outwards. So even then, I know it's a very small version. I mean, it's 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 a small scale version of it, but it is showing you that when we do tend to have, from the ethical side of it, those of us think we can just engineer our way out of this sometimes forget that, well, we can we can alleviate the problem for ourselves, but we're usually passing it on to someone else, often people that are ill-equipped to deal with it are under-resourced to deal with it. And, and that's why climate change in particular is not just a localizable problem. It's not just, you know, I'm all right, Jack, you know, that's okay. And for years, and that's why it's butted heads with libertarian philosophy for a very long time, because... I mean, I know I'm I'm simplifying grossly, but I'm all right, Jack, is is kind of central to some tenets of, of, of libertarian economics. But if you're knocking the ball down the cat and affecting someone else, you could argue that it's ideologically equivalent to trespass, which again most libertarians would be against. And there are versions, by the way, I need to be fair, there are libertarian thinkers who have posited solutions for climate change or adaptations to the conventional philosophy to deal with that. Um, but there's a lot that haven't as well. So I'm not singling out, just if anyone's listening, it's not the single, it's just to say that, you know, any, and, and this goes, by the way, if you want to the polar opposite I talk about in the book as well, just to flip it, you could look at parts of the green movement in Europe who are adamantly and resolutely opposed to nuclear power, even though it is part of a climate change solution, it's not the full solution, renewables, reduced energy consumption and nuclear are in the mix, but it's, it's a mix. And the reason they're adamantly against that is they're ideologically against it due to its connections to nuclear war, which is where a lot of these movements started in the 60s. That ideological marriage has marred their ability to see it. Now, there are people on the the Green Movement in Europe who have realized that's the wrong way of doing it and have adapted their philosophy. But just to say, not to say draw a false equivalence between the two, but to say that any ideology can be blinding to uh, certain realities. And there are always people will try to adapt it and the correct thing to do is to adapt your beliefs and I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say that to listeners of his show but um you know you must always adapt your beliefs to reflect the evidence not you know manipulate the evidence to maintain your belief um right. but it's very hard to do that as that's why we're chatting today
0: <laughs> um so the one of the things that is important in what you just said is that you can take any political position or otherwise that you may choose but where there are other relevant viewpoints critical thinking will remind us that we're obligated to consider in good faith those other viewpoints and we can't just say well i'm an ex-political type thinker and therefore I'm off the hook. No, you're not off the hook because the, you're never off the hook <laughs> determines whether you need to consider relevant viewpoints, not the thinker. So that is an important point, and it brings us back again to the ethical dimension, which we will come back to again and again in any kind of discussion about climate change. You also mentioned um, nuclear power I know that many climate change experts believe that nuclear power is essential to a green world. And you you talked about this this political ideology that connects nuclear power with nuclear war, but there is another dimension and that is the fear of nuclear meltdown and we've had experiences with that in the world that have been um, very um, catastrophic. So when we think of solutions to the problem, we, we have to think multi-logically and we, we, we may not, I know that it's, there will be many combinations of things that we have to do not one thing, but there is this reality of the problem of nuclear meltdown possibilities. And that is one of the reasons why many people will say, no, we wouldn't tolerate that. Would uh, oh, you- ab-
1: absolutely. You're you're correct when they say that. But my argument back to that, and again, I, I always think you have to adapt. Whatever solution we have will have to be adapted and different countries will have different things. But when we talk about nuclear meltdown, and maybe because I spent a lot of years doing radiobiology, I'm very in- interested in-, in what people think of that. And mm-hmm. you, in- you run into an interesting problem. And this is something we find a lot. Our perceptions are often very poor gauges of, you know, of the re- level of risk. So I-, I sometimes lecture my students on risk. And it's funny when you ask people what they think the biggest harms are versus when you show them the data um for example we're all afraid of of plane crashes but we even though statistically road accidents are far more likely and we travel by road far more frequently so this is where we're you know more likely to get to an accident nuclear energy kind of has a similar thing now the very first thing i say with this is all delivered the caveat that i am not ever saying nuclear energy is a panacea it's not we don't have a panacea for the climate if we had a panacea for climate change we'd be implementing it It may be part of it, but we need to look at it in context, and this is what I always say. We could look at Chernobyl, which is in the Ukraine in 1986 when the world's greatest failure of a nuclear plant. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. The Soviet authorities running it switched off every safety feature. They built the roof out of a flammable material. They were mixing radioactive materials in buckets. If you were making a list of everything you should do wrong with a nuclear plant, they did it. They had a massive steam explosion that contaminated a, a large area right now when we think about the crisis this killed people i need to be absolutely frank but we actually know how many people it killed because we have uh, the unesco data on this because every five years since chernobyl the un have sent in their atomic regulators to measure everything and to follow things up we know that since 1986 we can confirm 28th acute radiation syndrome deaths. That's people who went into the reactor uh, with no protection, by the way. The Soviet authorities didn't even tell them what they were doing and made them firefight inside the heart of a reactor. Bad idea. If anyone ever suggests doing that, please don't do that. Um, and then you had 15 children who died of thyroid cancers because if you you have to ingest radioiodine 131, which is the main contaminant around the area, uh, to get sick. What the Soviet authorities should have done was evacuate people. Instead, they denied there was a problem and these, mainly farmers, were eating this for several days. Children are particularly susceptible to this kind of cancer and it's particularly dangerous for children at 15 deaths. In the over 30 years of monitoring since, we haven't seen an uptick in solid cancers or tumours. Now, we need to go back to this. You still have over 40 people that died from an entirely avoidable accident, but then we need to put that in context. How many people have died a year from fossil fuels? Well, some of the estimates are up to 5 million from lung disease alone per year. If we go to, say, um, hydropower, which is relatively clean, um, the failure of a dam in China in the early 70s killed over 100,000 people and displaced 11 million. Mm -hmm. And about 96 people have died on wind farms in the past five years. Sorry, sorry, going back to uh, 2005. I got my figures wrong there. Now. That's not to say that hydropower or wind power is inherently dangerous, they're not. All energy production carries dangers with it. It's the context that's important, but I wouldn't, again, I'm saying that not to say like everyone should adopt nuclear. I'm just saying, if we talk about it, we put it in context. Um, but our feelings are often a poor gauge. And that's why, I mean, I'd often default to an expert. Opinion. I'd often have to ask someone and go, my perception is this, is my perception correct? And oftentimes someone will go, no. For example, over here, I'd still be, from an Irish context, we're a small country. And there's arguments that we should build a nuclear power plant or two. Ireland is very anti-nuclear. In fact, it's in our constitution that we can't build nuclear plants. And that's starting to ease off a bit now. But there's also an argument that our grid wouldn't well sustain it, and we should use hydropower off the coast because we have a lot of Atlantic water. So you adapt the solution to the problem. But I think recognising there's a problem and recognising that you need a solution and having the context for that with risks and benefits... In context. Um I've gone very convoluted there. I'm gonna stop because now I'm just it ranting is.
0: well it was you no know, it was very helpful your explanation of the nuclear meltdown and what actually did occur and how those deaths though significant and though but also relatively small in comparison to deaths caused by the oil industry. Um and those deaths in Russia, most of them could have been avoided from what you pretty just much, said.
1: Pretty much all of them. Now, to be absolutely fair, and because someone might listen to that and say, well, that's not very fair, David. And they'd be correct. There is a 30 kilometer exclusion zone still in the uh in, in Ukraine
0: mm-hmm. where
1: where this picture uh, this, this power plant or we know Chernobyl stood. Um, it's now a wildlife reserve. My friend and I went to it last year, like because because humans abandoned it, animals moved back in. So it's one of the best places in Europe to see like wolves and deer and crazy things like that. Um, but that's again, even though this has gone down to low levels of activity, you still had to abandon thirty, you know, square thirty square kilometers, right. which is not an insignificant amount of land. Um, they should have done it a lot earlier, but you know again everything comes at risk and it's just important to see it in context and i never would want to be accused of being um you know pro one or pro everything is context dependent like Mm -hmm. if you say i'm pro nuclear i'm pro wind i'm pro water it depends on the context and that's um one of the most annoying things about doing critical thinking is every time you think you have a nice simple heuristic you have to go oh but it's all specific on the context and what's best So there's no shortcuts, is there, unfortunately? Well,
0: there are some times when the answer is easy. Like, are we sitting here talking to one another right now? That's not a complex question. But there are other questions that are highly complex. And this one of how to address climate change, of course, is highly complex. And it's highly multidimensional. So we, we know that it's not going to be easy and that's why we have to have these hard discussions we have to listen to the experts and 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 hear what they have in terms of actual knowledge and not just someone's opinion so thank you for that discussion
1: oh, on- and it's also we also might get told things we don't want to hear and being willing to accept for example i think and i don't think this is a you know a single solution but I think most of us in the rich Western world probably do overconsume. We probably are quite wasteful, um, so that's part of it. At the same time, as saying that, I don't want to let fossil fuel companies off the hook because if we look at the footprint of who's producing the most carbon, uh, for decades it has been the the the, the petrol industry, who uh, who of course have also put the most amount of effort into disinformation campaigns and. Um, anti-climate change movements. I mean, they've been doing this since the, the 1970s, at least. So they do bear a great responsibility for it. And I, I, I'm I, always, my my dad will come in, for example. My dad, very energy conscious. He's like, we switch all the lights off because we'll save energy. And it's good for the environment. And he's right. He's not wrong. But I often say to him, okay, but what? how much of a difference do you think all of us switching off the lights would make versus, say going after British petroleum for their pollution or or shell or someone like that. Um so it's careful not to get into the economy of scale problems because I actually don't know what the scale is there. But I don't I don't want to blame individuals again for what is it. We all have a role to play, but it's probably a, it's probably a pretty solid argument to say that corporations probably have a lot more of a responsibility. But again, we consume that product too. So it's a complicated, meshy nest that I don't know how to easily answer.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's difficult because there's so much pollution in and among and around us. For example, we're now learning that there are microplastics in the clouds. So I just read that this morning. So microplastics in the clouds, microplastics in our water, microplastics in our houses, so we're breathing it we're drinking it we're eating it it's it's a it's it's all around us and i think this is one of the ways in which the real polluters get off the hook because they can make the move well how can you say it's our fault it's not our fault it's their fault it's their fault it's their fault and so it goes
1: it's it's diffusion of responsibility, isn't it? If you can point the finger in many directions. And, and that's something tangentially related to climate change. But I think you see it in climate change a lot. One of my frustrations with climate change denialism is it makes people apathetic. When we should be furious and we should want to take corrective action, we get apathetic. And that is, I spend a lot of my time researching disinformation, usually in the health sphere, but I've looked at it, say, with Russia and different places like that. One of the biggest goals of disinformation is not to change your mind, which is a funny thing you think it would be. It's to make you doubt everything. Mm -hmm. So if, say, why would Russia flood the zone with very obvious falsehoods about Ukraine? Because it, it dilutes the amount of anger you might have about the human rights abuses going on in the war. We're like, oh, it's all crazy. I don't want to... Humans have a certain capacity to observe, to absorb information until we go, I don't know, I'm I just, there's too much. And climate change, we've seen a lot of that on climate change, disinformation doesn't have to convince you that there's no climate change. It just has to make you feel hopeless or apathetic that you just don't want to engage with it. Mm-hmm. And often when I deal with broadcasters over here, even in the US, I think with PBS, I have conversations with broadcasters and they're like, we really want to cover more climate change, but people switch off. And they switch off because they feel powerless or apathetic. Like mm-hmm. the biggest we know from social media, the biggest single thing that influences whether something goes viral, whether it's true or false, is if it makes you angry. If it makes you angry and disgusted, which is why a lot of disinformation pivots on that. But because climate change is such an existential threat that we all feel so powerless about, it kind of doesn't work with climate change stuff. So broadcasters will tell me that like we want to do more climate change coverage, but we our audience switch off. And that's one of the sad legacies of 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 this that we have. We feel powerless, um, mm-hmm. and we we probably aren't. That's the good news. We probably aren't, but we need to put our political power in the right direction because ultimately we need to tell politicians that this matters to us, and they tend to reflect that back. But it's hard to get that. You know, I'm making it sound very easy. In practice, that is very complicated.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Now, some experts have said we're entering the sixth extinction and this being caused primarily by human activity. What is your view of this? Do you think that this is where we are?
1: I've read these things and I I tend to agree, but I would also have to clarify it a little bit. Um, One thing that humans have done. So if you look at us in the animal kingdom and we are, I believe that's one of the reasons my book was retitled in the United States, because there is a lot of um, evolution is not entirely accepted in the States. So the irrational ape didn't really work over there with the marketing people. So it became good thinking. Uh, but you go into to, 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 to answer that question. There's um that we've always been affecting things since we've evolved on this planet. Humans have had one advantage over all the other predators in the world. and We probably are a predator. We're an omnivore predator, most likely. Um we have the ability to adapt our environment we've been in we're not stronger than other animals we're not um we're not bigger we're not we can't survive in open water very long we but we're very good at manipulating our environment and for most of our history that's been to our benefit but the problem with that is we don't we 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 can we can disrupt things a great deal so human mediated extinctions have probably been happening for as long as humans have settled, but we are now over 8 billion of us on this planet. We consume vastly more um, since the industrial age has dawned than we ever did before. So from a resource perspective, we're eating things up. Um, That makes it harder for other creatures to survive. You get into environmental arms races, evolutionary arms races, and we kind of win them, but to our detriment long-term, because actually we, we are part of an ecosystem. And if we strip out parts of that ecosystem, we cause damage. Have we caused and are we driving extinction? Yes, absolutely. How do we compare it to previous things? That's a bit more difficult to put in perspective. Uh, For example, I would say, this is a weird comparison, but I sometimes tell my students about the great oxygen extinction event, which is when uh, cyanobacteria first evolved. Um, Most of the living creatures on earth were anaerobic, they didn't use oxygen. And there was very little in the atmosphere and suddenly you had these things co- doing photosynthesis creating oxygen and they raised the oxygen level so high that it wiped out about 99.7 percent of all life on earth most of which was anaerobic right but is that comparable because we were talking back in the days of single-celled organisms and and, and bacteria it's probably not really comparable to the complex animal life that we have now um but there will be consequences for us if we drive that 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 extinction, because again, we are still part of an ecosystem. Our food source is very fragile, and it has to be sustainable. And that's why I think sustainable has become a real word that we use a lot now. I I hope it doesn't just become a buzzword, but there is a sustainable way to consume. We just quite haven't got there, and until we do, extinction events are probably going to be on our heads for a while.
0: So you're not sure whether we've entered a major. New sixth extin- extinction that will mean massive die-off of animals. You're not sure whether that's. I, I, I'm I,
1: I'm kind of not qualified. I've read about it and it seems quite a convincing argument. But then you draw on it. Like, when did we start it? I mean, some authors say we started with the industrial revolution. Some say it started earlier, and some people say from the 50s or 60s. So I don't doubt them because they are far more expert than me. It's just a very hard thing to quantify. And the caveat is I'm really interested in it, but I would never claim to have expertise in it. So I, I, I'll, I'll leave it to smarter people than me to reason <laughs> that one out.
0: Now I want to point out the answer is a very good answer because here is a person saying, I don't know. And one of the problems we have in human thinking is that we think we have to know everything. And usually the people who know, the often people who know the least amount are the people who pretend to know the most. And we need more people saying, um, you can ask me again and again the same question, and I'm still going to answer in the same way, which is I don't know the answer, and I'll leave that to someone who has studied it, uh, the issue more closely. So it's a it's a wonderful answer.
1: Well, thank you. And But I think you said, <laughs> you said at the beginning as well, like it is uh, expertise is narrow. So mm-hmm. I would have good expertise on a very narrow range of things and general knowledge and everything else. Mm-hmm. But I also so a, a friend of mine described things. He said he was reading a newspaper over here and it, it, he's a, he's an expert surgeon and he read an article about something he is an expert in. And he was absolutely outraged by how wrong it was and the, the broad strokes and the accuracies. And then he turned the page over at the newspaper and read the finance section and accepted everything as true. Mm-hmm. And I kind of laughed, I said, well, that, that's it, isn't it? Like if it's, we, we can have general, and we accept certain levels of um, vagueness, I suppose, or or inaccuracy right up until it's our area of expertise. And then then we we get very, um, but I think there's also a recognition that we can only have, we're humans. As you said earlier on, we can only learn a certain amount. We are not going to know everything. But what we can do is get a broad appreciation. I think sometimes the most important thing, and I find this with students, I think teaching is quite humbling when you do this. When you suddenly realize that younger students think that you know everything. And you, in like the first lecture, you have to disabuse them of that notion and go, I don't know the answer to that. It's a really good question. Let's try to work it out together. Um, and some of them, some of them love that. And some of them look at you horrified because they've come from a system where their teachers always knew everything. And now they're in university and you're saying, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. But it's interesting. Uh, we can look it up. But then you're always you're showing people the building of how you answer a question. Not I have to have the answer, but how would I find the answer and where would I go to? And yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It's it's and with climate change, it's I mean, I read the IPCC reports because they're really good. And they have a nice lay summary for people like me who are who who know some of it but aren't technical experts in that subject domain and that's a really important thing to do as well i mean it's so important to communicate the the specifics you look for when you're trying to do technical stuff on that but understanding the basics and just having that general knowledge that's really important too and you know the level of depth you need to understand something I always say that most ideas can be explained to an intelligent six-year-old. But when you want to get into the super specifics, you probably do need experts and you probably need to, you know, de- de- not defer to them. because That sounds vaguely, you know, worst-trick authority. That's not what I mean. But I often go to experts in areas when I'm trying to research a piece or when I'm writing something um, and ask, can you explain that to me? Because I don't understand it. And they will. And then, you know, oh, cool. And then you're then you're kind of in awe of how much they know. But they'll say to you, well, I know this much about my narrow area and and that's wonderful but when you realize we're all like that then we can we can share resources a hell of a lot better i think
0: this this point that you make about students is is very important you said they've had teachers before who knew everything but you that was not that was tongue in cheek because the teachers didn't know everything but yeah. they pretended as if they did know everything and they taught as if they did know everything. They taught as if they were the way, the truth and the light and the students were to come to them for that. And as a result, intellectual virtues such as intellectual humility were missing from the educational process. Therefore, the students were not becoming educated and they come to you and you're saying, well, I don't know. And that is what the best teachers do because that's what the best thinkers do. The best thinkers will frequently say, I don't know the answer to that. And they're very comfortable saying that. Exactly. So we've got to somehow help our students develop these intellectual virtues. And we need to start this at a much, much earlier place in their lives.
1: You you, you are absolutely correct. And in, in good thinking or the irrational ape, I, 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 I repeatedly come back to this mantra where there is no shame in being wrong or, or not knowing something. There is only shame in refusing to change your mind when the evidence is presented that makes that you know, mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we need to get away. There is a thing, and I think the way teachers are insecure in their knowledge, and I mean, I, I know a lot of great teachers as well, but the ones that are, you know, we've all had them. We've had the good ones, we've had the bad ones. But I think we have to move away from this idea that we need to know everything. Um, we don't. That's why we're learning. Like we're always learning. Um, and sometimes the best thing. And I love people that say to me, "I don't understand that. Can you help me understand?" Like, and sometimes you don't really realize how much you understand something until you have to explain it to someone else. <laughs> suddenly you go, "Wow, I have a gap in my knowledge." Because I go, "I know this is true, but like, can- but I used to find this when I was teaching maths, and now I find it when I'm teaching like um, communication concepts. I'm like, I knew that once." And I know it's true, but I can't remember how I, and then you have to go and come back and, and kind of work at first principles and come back and go, okay, that's why. But I think that we've been raised a little bit to think that we have to have all the answers. No, not at all. We, it's more important to learn how to think than what to think, mm-hmm. right? So what is the process that I go to answer these questions or to understand this versus what's the answer? you know anyone could write down a prepared chat gpt can give you a prepared answer for something it's not going to give you any depth of understanding mm-hmm. um and and that's where like you know that's where we we sometimes fail a little bit i think a very secure educator will absolutely welcome that question welcome that discussion and be able to marshal that discussion um to to get something good out of it i think it's a sign of insecurity in your in your in your teaching and perhaps yourself and perhaps your students if you think that you are just going to be the uh, the the metatron the voice of god telling them everything that's true and actually that i think that does a disservice to educators the the types that do that because you know people are curious and it's good to encourage that because oftentimes i'm I'm sure you've had this as well you go into a position thinking i know a good bit about this and i'm fairly sure my position is x and you have a nice discussion with someone you walk away and go oh good lord no i've changed my mind entirely they've given Mm -hmm. me a really good argument And I always say we never change anyone else's mind. We just give them the tools to change their own. No one's ever changed my mind, but they've put such a good argument in that I've thought about it and that I've changed my mind. That labor is always done by yourself. Uh, So we need to realize that it's not about winning an argument. It's about sometimes realizing that you go in at one position and have a discussion and go, oh yeah, you know what? I'm changing my position. I'm revising it. You make a better argument. And that's something that should be lauded. We should be happy when people do that, not put out.
0: Yes, this is what we term confidence and reason. So you are following the facts wherever they take you, even if you don't like where they're taking you, even if it means you have to admit that you've been wrong for all of your life and you're able to, as it were, change your thinking on a dime. Obviously, that doesn't always happen because our egocentric thinking gets in the way and we want to hold on to those beliefs even when we are and it, for the person who's thinking at the highest level, it can be hard to make that change in your thinking, but you do um, value that and you seek that. And maybe it takes a few days to realize, <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't right on that. Yep. And by the way, I want to just mention one thing to just back up so that people understand when I was talking about teachers and when you were talking about teachers, I don't I think the problem is not with the teacher so much as with the systems. Yeah. Because all I think all teachers want to or vast majority do want to educate but then when they themselves are not educated because the system doesn't educate them that yeah. they go through then the problem perpetuates itself. So yeah. anyway that's a just a correction on
1: no absolutely and also critical thinking is not intuitive like i always point out occasionally and i've had to correct people i was chatting to someone at CSICon last year after i gave a talk and they said something that i i've heard a lot but it wasn't correct they went oh you know like we're critical thinkers so we wouldn't make those mistakes and i I stop and go no hang on a second Mm -hmm. i said every human being can make these mistakes i said the problem is very intelligent people can actually rationalize their mistakes better that's almost a double-edged saber. If you're really intelligent, you can be shown to be wrong and still probably worm out of the argument by some clever. so and what we see from the data is that intelligence is no, and even education, direct in the form of educational attainment, they don't directly correlate with your your susceptibility to irrational thoughts or bad ideas. You We all know incredibly intelligent people who became conspiracy theorists or went down some other rabbit holes. So, I mean, we know Nobel Prize winners, like Linus Pauling is my favorite example, who's, you know, had crazy ideas later on and just refused to listen to reason. None of this is a shield against this stuff. And I think critical thinking has to be learned. It's not intuitive because normally we're intuitive th- thinkers. We come to we're trying to save time we're coming to fast decisions we're like I got a feeling on that we trust our gut and our gut knows nothing like we've (laughs) our gut is by statistics in particular I love I love confusing my students with good like counterintuitive statistical examples because their gut always gets it wrong Daniel Kahneman was writing about that in his research and in thinking fast and slow as well about how our intuitive thought is often wrong critical thinking is hard and even educators unless they're trained in it Aren't gonna necessarily have that now. I mean, my brother is a teacher and he's wonderful, but he'd be very into bringing this to his students. Some of his colleagues have it, some of them don't. Um, it's understandable. This isn't intuitively, and it's 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 why podcasts like this are important because you know you're talking about these concepts and you only you have to practice them all the time. Like they 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 that you atrophy if you don't practice them.
0: Exactly. Let me just say a couple of things about what you said. One is that when I talk about critical thinking, I I don't say of a person so and so is a critical thinker. Uh, obviously, including myself, I don't think of people as critical thinkers or not. I think of people as thinking critically within domains of thought or failing to do so. So there isn't a critical thinker. There isn't. You can't. Somebody said, "Well, give me a model of a critical thinker." I'd say well, first of all, I'd have to live with that person. I have to know every single b- thing about the person. And in fact, I'd have to get into the person's mind, which is an impossibility. Absolutely. All we can do is look at the products of their thinking that are available to us in their behavior. So that's one thing. Another is calling into question a bit, the very concept of intelligence. You see, if you're If you're thinking of traditional ways of thinking about intelligence, then everything that you said stands, but I don't think you're an intelligent person if you can't think critically about basic things. Uh, So in other words, I'm saying the very concept of intelligence as we've considered it is problematic. And as we know, it doesn't tell a lot about how you function in the world or about how you think about uh, any a given issue so
1: absolutely and uh, weirdly enough one of the things one of my pet hates is and i write about it very briefly in the book but binet the guy who came up with our standard iq test was a french uh, teacher the educationalist and he designed it as a test to help work out what students needed more help because he believed and mainly correctly that intelligence is highly malleable right so he designed it for a very altruistic reason to work out the students that maybe had more difficulty processing that he needed to spend more time with versus the ones he didn't have to spend that much time with. And very quickly, this very rough metric suddenly was adapted by, say, eugenicists and people with weird views as as a stick to beat people with. And it's a great example of something, you know, being used for a purpose it's not supposed to be used for. So all IQ testing might do is give you an idea of how quickly you can make somnatic connections. It doesn't tell you anything about how you're going to use them so and it's and and you're right so it's it's not a metric I mean when people the the weirdest brag I ever hear is people bragging about their high IQ I'm like (laughs) who cares who cares It, it means nothing and also you know you, you you don't even get into it, but i it's i find pe it's, it's the only thing worse than it is people who brag like white supremacists bragging about being white that is the only thing that makes less sense to me i'm like you were just born with that skin color why are you proud of it it's a weird thing mm-hmm. um it's a weird thing to be proud of would be my arguments because i agree with you that it's it's a it's not a metric that captures much
0: mm-hmm. now we we're not able to, we haven't had time to talk much about your book and we need to begin to bring this to a close so maybe we can have another interview to go more deeply into your book. And by the way, I do very much resonate with the title, The Irrational Ape. And um, I'm sorry that was dropped in the US. But I do want to ask you this question. What is, but well, let me preface it by saying that critical thinking, as a concept, as a term, was has really become explosive in the last decade. If you go back to 1980 or so, almost no one had ever heard of critical thinking, and then only in academic some few academic circles. Moving into the 1990s it begins to spread out into academia in the US and I think in the UK. But now in the last 10 years, everyone and everyone's relatives and everyone's friends and everyone else is now a critical thinker. And everyone on the right, left and center and everywhere in between on the political spectrum considers themselves critical thinkers. So I preface my question with that. How do you conceptualize critical thinking in your book?
1: That That is actually one of the defining opening chapters. I, I kind of have that discussion a little bit. And when I was writing the book, this started happening, that you'd see it more and more. I deal a lot with conspiracy theorists, partly from my research, partly from my outreach, and I could probably pull up, if I open my email now, five or 600 emails from conspiracy theorists describing themselves as critical thinkers. They literally will say that. I'm someone who has a lot of passion of critical thinking, but I don't think I'd ever, like you just said there, it's a, it's, not a, it's not a monarchy you define yourself by. It's not that person's a critical thinker. It's are they employing critical thought at the moment? Um, so I kind of point out that a term I prefer is, is analytical thought as opposed to intuitive thinking intuitive thinking is what we do most of the time. And most of the time it's fine for, you know, do I want, you know, an ice cream or do I want to go and sit in the park or whatever? That's not going to make a big difference to most things, but when you start weighing up difficult problems that are multi-layered and that might really impact you or impact the world around you, we cannot rely on our intuitive senses. We have to employ um, slightly more nuanced ways of making inferences about the world to make the best choices possible and to you know ideally i mean i, I know it's a bit of it, it, it's a bit of hyperbole but also to, to to save the world we need to start small you know, am i making the right decisions now on this topic whether it's who i'm voting for whether it's what you know product i'm going to buy they sound like small decisions but everything adds up so it's 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 going away from intuitive thought is is the I know I, I go into more depth in the book about it, but that is vaguely the thing I get. But to go back to what you said, and I think it's really important. Yes, in the last ten years, critical thought has become somewhat corrupted by its um, its its common usage, which I feel is contrarianism. So it's being opposed to something that is, say, well-supported, and then saying you're a critical thinker because you're rejecting that. That, of course, is not critical thought. That's contrarianism. Um, When we go to climate change, for example, I wrote a piece in 2014 for The Guardian about this. God, almost 10 years ago now. Wow, it's weird. That's how long we've been writing about this. And I pointed out that people who are denying climate change weren't climate change skeptics or weren't climate change critical thinkers. They were climate change denialists because the evidence was so overwhelming for it that them rejecting the consensus wasn't evidence of having weighed things up critically. And of course, with critical thinking, you often might end up agreeing. Most of the time, you're going to agree with consensus positions. You're going to weigh it up and go, well, the evidence is there for that. So yes, I, that makes sense. Um, unfortunately, I think critical thinking has been co-opted by certain actors to mean contrarianism. And contrarianism is a a very good way on social media of getting a high profile and getting lots of engagement, outrage, um, being alternative that always will get you attention. And that, unfortunately, we have a marketplace of attention. So it's really important to distinguish critical thought as you or I are talking about it now, which is subjecting your ideas to a huge amount of scrutiny and an objective test of them to divorce your values from them a little bit sometimes when you're making decisions to not just go with something because you want it to be true, to hold your own beliefs to the same scrutiny you'd hold someone else's beliefs to, which is really hard to do. And it requires constant practice. And often, and I think you've probably had this well, you often have that uncomfortable feeling when you suddenly realize you're wrong about something and you have to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, there's a sense of catharsis. Okay, well, you know what? I did change my mind, the evidence that I should do that. Mm-hmm. Um, And it has to be contrasted with, as you point out in the last 10 years, people abusing that terminology to mean the polar opposite of what critical thinking is. So anyone who describes themselves as a critical thinker, it, sometimes it's a red flag for me because I'm just like, are you... Anyone can be rational about something when it suits them, but if it if it doesn't suit them, they might not be. So critical thinking is actually defined by practice, not by self-description, if that makes sense.
0: Well, let me just... Say a couple of things about the concept of critical thinking. There there isn't a better term for what we for what we hope to achieve. We need to retain the term critical thinking. But people Agreed. have to understand that critical thinking ultimately means the criteria we should be using in our reasoning so the critical means criteria it doesn't mean criticizing
1: precisely it's the
0: criteria for thinking yeah. and there is a large body of scholarship in critical thinking that is almost entirely ignored by even people who are now putting their name out as experts in critical thinking they're not scholars in critical thinking scholarship in critical thinking is mainly not being paid attention to. And one of the main problems there is that critical thinking does not have an academic home of its own. It's been owned and operated historically by philosophers who wanted to teach formal logic or informal logic or metaphysics or whatever they wanted to teach. And they wanted to slap the term critical thinking on that because that's how you get students in your classes. Now, we have uh, other academic fields that want to get students in their classes. So they say, well, look, philosophers don't have, you know, the final say on critical thinking. We sociologists do or we psychologists do. So we'll have psychology and critical thinking. But if you look at what they're doing, there isn't theory of critical thinking that is explicit that they're using. They're using their own um, ideas of what that means and they're not doing their homework so no
1: no I, I, but there is an argument as well um which which I, I kind of expressed in the book at one stage sometimes scientists do this as well i've seen a lot of scientists co-opting critical thinking yes. right and sometimes correctly and sometimes incorrectly but there's an argument and it goes back to greek antiquity um what we call the scientific method or, you know, sometimes Bacon's or Galton's better, depending on, you know, I don't like to give one person the credit for it, right? I point out in the book, that is not the providence of just science. The mm. things that, is, if anything, the scientific method is a rebranding of very, very early treatises on what critical thought would be. Before I accept this, I test this, I do this, I check this. Like the analytical, and we didn't have a terminology for it a lot of the times, it's been borrowed. So I don't think any, I I think what you point out there, there's no single field that owns critical thinking per se, and um, which in one way is a disadvantage because it makes it harder to work out where do we go. But in another advantage, these are, just to take devil's advocate on this, because, I mean, I, when, I'm t- when I'm teaching my students at Scientific Method, I point out these ideas pre-existed over 2,000 years before we had a formalized scientific method because they are this this is stuff that goes back to antiquity where people talked about how we should reason how we should think when we do it in science we're actually applying that to experiments but it goes beyond that because these these are decision making rhetorics and, and 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 ideas that we use they're not they've evolved and they continue to evolve um i don't know where they go i mean that's a really good question when you say like where do they go and i go are they are they the um, inheritance of all humanity, or do they? Do, should they? I I don't know. That's a really good question.
0: Well, scientific thinking, if it's done well, and it can be done, and is often done poorly. Oh yeah. <laughs> if it's done well, then it's it would be a contextualization of critical thinking.
1: I agree entirely. Critical
0: thinking is required in every field of study, in every domain of human life, and no field should be co-opting it there is a field of critical thinking that is mainly ignored. And that is what I would like to see not be ignored by experts who call themselves um, critical thinkers. So let's, we, we could, I can see that we could go on And on and and we are enjoying this, and I think we need to bring this to a close. And hopefully, we'll have. I talk
1: too much. I'm very Irish. Sorry, just a long talking.
0: Maybe we can come back to your book in another interview. But my final question for you is is really going back then to the climate crisis, and that is how it's easy for people to feel like, well, as you mentioned earlier, you know, what's the point? I'm just sad, and I'm. I'm I'm angry and I'm I'm uh, I don't I just I want to just lay down and cry or I'll just sit around and just watch soap operas all day long or whatever people do I'll just play video games you know what's the point so what what would be your advice to any of us in terms of what we can do to help alleviate this pro- human created problem. The- I think that's
1: a really, that's a really rich question. You just throw me a tough one there in the last one, but let, let me try to, to, to briefly and briefly, I will say this time, outline a few things that we can do. Right. Um, there, 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 there is the idea that united, we are far more powerful than we are in isolation. So a lot of the problems that have led to climate change becoming the crisis that it is have been uh, systemic. And they've been systemic on two fronts. Firstly, they've been systemic in politics. So it's often an issue that's sidelined. It's a complicated issue that will probably require sacrifice or higher taxes or something, right? That people, politicians reason, they, they, they put their fingers in the wind, they're gonna go, ooh, the, the, the voters won't go for that. So one of the most powerful things we can do, and it sounds really lame, but there's good evidence it actually works, is if we make it clear, that our electoral preferences are decided about how serious um, our, our elected representative are taking climate change and not, you know, lip service stuff. Actually, what are your policies? What are you going to do about this? That and, and getting involved in that is really, really important because ultimately politicians respond to social pressure. And if they think this matters to their voters and that's another thing. The second thing we can do is also hold our media accountable. So I always think, and when books are written on this in the future, and maybe the next time I write a book, I'll go into this, but um, the amount of deliberate double dealing that certain media outlets got away with on climate change, whether it was false balance or inaccurate reporting, and often at the behest of of vested interests, I mean the Murdoch press, we could get it, we won't get into that now, but they did serious harm and they should have been held accountable by us, but and and they're starting to be, but we need. It. So where we can exercise our powers, we can exercise it politically. Yes, we can do individual things to reduce our consumption. We can walk or cycle instead of drive. You can get public transport. All of these things sound cliched, but they do work. But I think because this is a crisis and it needs systemic change, it's political. And I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party. I think everyone has to be making it super clear. Um, the, from, And there is some promising stuff here you even take when I was writing in Scientific American about the uh about the Republican candidates basically dismissing climate change. But what you probably I'm not sure if it's in the piece or it got cut out for length Um, young Republicans were actually quite angry about that young Republicans were there saying, oh, we we need to we, we need to talk about climate change. So even in the Republican Party, there's people that want to take climate change seriously. And um, this affects all of us it it's it should go beyond politics. It needs to go beyond that and go, but we need to use our political will that no matter who's running for election, anyone in any position of authority, we need to go sorry, this is where it matters. I think that's where we will get the most bang for our book, but I am happy to be corrected by people that know more than me on that
0: so thank you so much for your time. This has been so enjoyable even though the topic has been difficult and it's Thanks true Got to keep fighting, and doing what we can for the earth itself, for other sentient creatures and for any humans that may be living, coming into the future. So thank you. And I look forward to talking with you again.
1: An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you to all of you who have joined us. Hopefully you've learned something. I know that I have, and we look forward to seeing you in future programs. Thank you.